Let's pray. Lord, we have a great adversary. Many antichrists have gone out into the world. Therefore, we know it is the last hour. But he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world, you've told us, and therefore we will not be shaken. And so, Grant, I pray now that as I attempt to describe life together at the end of the age, I would be faithful to your word and that you would grant ears to hear to those who are listening. Fill me now with your Holy Spirit so that the truth is spoken and the demonstration of the Spirit and power is manifest. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as a part of the series that we're in, that Jason is bringing in these days, I want to talk to you about life together at the end of the age. And here's the way I'm going to approach it. First, we'll go to our text and state the main point of the message and locate it in the text with the biblical foundation under it very briefly. And then we will turn to explain why I am choosing to talk about this. I could have, Jason said I could talk about anything I wanted to, so why this? Third, I will describe what I mean by the end of the age from the Bible. And finally, I'll return to the text and show you why the main point of the text is so important in protecting ourselves in the last day from the deceivers that have gone out into the world. So that's where we're going. If you like maps, now turn with me again to 2 John and we'll just read verses 5, 6, and 7. And now I ask you, dear lady, and I think the lady is probably the church. Um, could be a, a woman who has a church in her house, but most people think at the beginning and the end it's a, the word for church is feminine, and this is one of the ways that she was spoken of in those days. So, dear church and, and those in your house, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we had from the beginning, that we love one another. So there's the main commandment of the letter, that we love one another. Now, verse 6, and this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. And this is the commandment, just as you heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it, namely the command that you love one another. So the point of those two verses is love one another. And then here comes the reason. You see the four at the beginning of verse 7? Could be a because. Because, or four, deceivers, many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. So, verses 5 and 6 are the main point of the letter and of this message, namely that we are to love each other. We're to be a community of profound affection for one another. And then the reason he gives here is that many deceivers have gone out into the world, even the spirit of Antichrist. 
So here's my restatement of that logic. Life together in Christian love is a great protection against deception. You see that? Is that okay? Life in love, a life together in love is a great protection against deception. Otherwise, why would he say, love one another? A lot of deceivers have gone out into the world. If there's no connection, there is a connection. And we'll analyze that later. Why, why is that? Why is love such a good protection against demonic, anti-Christian deception? Why, why would that be? What causes me to choose the title Life Together at the End of the Age is because in verse 7, it says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one, these deceivers, such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. And every time you, I mean, everybody, when they hear the word antichrist, thinks of the end of the age, right? And we should. And the reason we should, for example, you know, John is the only person who used the word antichrist in the Bible, and it's only in 1 John and 2 John. So he's the expert on the antichrist. And in 1 John 2.18, he says, children, it is the last hour and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so many Antichrists have come, so we, therefore we know it is the last hour. So yeah, if you hear the word Antichrist, you should think last hour, because he said so. That's how you know it's the last hour. 2,000 years ago. Evidently, John has a very elastic view of the last hour or the end of the age. He indeed does, and so does Paul and Matthew and every other writer in the New Testament have a very elastic view of the hour. So they had been taught that this is going to happen. Verse 18 of 1 John 2 you have heard, you have heard, I've taught you this. Paul talks that way as well. You've heard this. This is part of basic early Christian teaching, end time teaching about the way the world was going to be wrapped up was pretty early on in the teaching. Thessalonica, about three weeks old. We'll be there in a minute. He explains a little more. Chapter four of first John Verse 3, every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist. Or literally, this is the one of Antichrist, belongs to Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now already in the world. So now get this. You heard the Antichrist is coming. That's true. 
he is. And many antichrists in the spirit of that antichrists belonging to that antichrist of one piece with that antichrist are already there in the world. See the word already at the end of verse 3, 1 John 4? That's very important. We're going to see it also in 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians. Some of you seminarians have learned to speak of the kingdom of God is, is coming. It's not yet here in its consummation, but it's already here in its fulfillment. You've heard that. That's true of Antichrist. He's coming, but he's not, he's not yet here, but he's here already. So love each other. That's, what the, that's the point of the message. Love each other in the face of Antichrist. Love each other in the face of many Antichrists that have gone out into the world. Love each other in the face of the spirit of Antichrist as the Antichrist hovers on the horizon. So the point, again, live together in love, Bethlehem, because love is a great protection against the deceptions of the spirit of Antichrist, which is already in the world. Now, in the map, we are at, why did I choose to talk about this? I am handing off my leadership role of almost 33 years to Jason. The world in which he will now and you will now live and minister is so different than when I came. It would have been unthinkable in 1980, not to mention 1950, would have been unthinkable in 1980 to suggest that anyone would seriously propose defining marriage as between two men. <laughs> you, you, just, you would have been laughed out of court. It was so ludicrous. It, it was even more unthinkable that in a mere 30 years, brief 30 years, America would have so lost her soul that most people approve of a definition of marriage that no society in the history of the world has ever embraced. It is what has happened to our land. And it would have been unthinkable that instead of rejecting the non-existence and non-unreality of so-called same-sex marriage, instead of rejecting that, 
the culture would begin to criminalize calling it sin, which it is. I sometimes think of you, Jason, serving 32 years, but the last 15 may be in jail. He's not going to wimp out on you. We're not going to adjust the Bible to save our tax status, to get out of jail, to keep our businesses because of the HHS mandate. We're not. Are we? Many are, many are wimping out. Can't lose my business. Why not? They were thrown to lions. Along with the tragic loss of moral compass in this country, we have increasingly lost freedoms and we'll lose more. The freedom of speech is disappearing as the secular consensus grows that our shame is our glory and that to use simple biblical language to describe sin is hate speech. It's hateful. And already illegal, prosecuted as illegal in certain places in Canada, in America, to simply say, no matter how tenderly, warmly, lovingly, humbly, just to say the words that are in the Bible will be criminalized. And we will know who's a Christian. Or the freedom of worship is disappearing as metropolitan commissions and councils take prerogatives to prohibit worship space and activities. And along with the loss of freedoms goes an increasing governmental constraint and pressure to act in unbiblical ways. Not just to prevent us from acting in biblical ways, but to force us to act in unbiblical ways. Funding killing children. You must or we will fine you. You must endorse the legitimacy of sinful behaviors and soon you must participate in it. Like if you are a chaplain in the military there will be no evangelical chaplains in the military within a couple of years because they will be required to solemnize these non-existent so-called same-sex marriages. And they won't do it, will they? And the compulsory normalizing of sin in public institutions will probably force biblical Christians out of the public schools. So, in view of these dramatic developments, since I've been here and as I'm handing off, it seemed good to me that I should reflect at least briefly in one message 
on how then shall we live? How should you feel? How should you think? How should you act? As you are increasingly marginalized, intimidated, and criminalized. You're going to get angry? You're going to live the rest of your life seething with anger? That's not what I'm going to suggest. On the map we've just arrived at, what do you mean by the end of the age? I said he had this elastic view of the last hour. He was in the last hour 2,000 years ago, and we're in the last hour. That's a stretchy hour. It is. Listen, a couple of texts from Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Long ago, in many times and in various ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son. So when were the last days? When Jesus came. He spoke by a son. That's the sign of the last days. Messiah is here. Or chapter 9, verse 26 of Hebrews, Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages. Christ appeared at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And then consider 1 Corinthians 1, uh, 10, 11. Now these things have happened to them, the Old Testament people, as an example for us. They were written down for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages has come. It's all over the New Testament. The end came with Jesus. The Messiah was coming at the dividing of the ages. And he did. He divided the ages. We're living in the last days ever since he came. Remember Pentecost. What is this? Sounds like a bunch of drunken people there all speaking in these tongues from all over the world. And Peter says, this is that which was spoken of the prophet Joel. In the last days, you'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. So it's just all over. So we know the last hour, the end of the age, the last days arrived when Jesus arrived. So if there are skeptics among you who are rolling your eyes and saying, <laughs> that's ridiculous because it's been 2,000 years and I mean, they obviously blew it. You know what? That question was already being asked a good 10, 20, 30, 40 years later. And Pete, let me read you Peter's answer to it. It is stunning. I mean, if you take this answer seriously that the apostle gave, you won't roll your eyes anymore. You'll take a deep breath and marvel. So here's what he said. This is 2 Peter. In chapter 3, the scoffers said, where's the promise of his coming? So they were already saying that. You said he came, he's the last days, he's going back, coming back soon, soon. Where is he? It's been several decades. And here's what Peter said. This is 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, 
that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years as one day, which means, and this is no joke and profound, we are two days into the last days. Totally. From God's standpoint, day before yesterday, they started. So we're always living in the last days. We're always living in the end times. We're always at the end of the age. But the end will have an end. And I want to ask about that. The end doesn't last forever. The end ends. There's an end to the end. And I want to know, and you want to know, what's that? What are we looking for? How close are we? Are we in that? The end of the end. There's the Antichrist, and there's the spirit of Antichrist, and all these Antichrists who are participating in that. How close? So now I invite you to go to 2 Thessalonians. This is where Paul is the most detailed of all of his letters about the end of the end. All right? I care a lot about this, and you should too. The end of the end. This 2,000 elastic hour that we've been in for all this time with Messiah Jesus reigning on his throne until all of his enemies are put under his feet. When will that end? How will it end? What will it look like before it ends? Like America in the 21st century? Let's read 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 to 10. This is evidence, and this refers to their suffering. The suffering is evidence, 2 Thessalonians 1, 5. This suffering is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God or made worthy through your suffering for which you are also suffering since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who are afflicting you and repay, grant relief to you who are afflicted. She's got this double thing that's going to happen. The afflictors are going to be afflicted and the afflicted are going to be relieved. When? How? When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day, that's the end of the end, on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. So the way these last days will end is with the coming of the Lord Jesus with his holy angels in flaming fire to bring relief to his suffering people and to bring judgment to those who have not believed. This is clear and glorious. 
and you should tremble when you read it. At the end of the end, as always, there is conflict between Christ's people and unbelievers. They are being persecuted, and Paul says the solution to that persecution and that affliction and that oppression will be Christ splitting the heavens and sweeping them away and vindicating his people. That's the way it will end. That's the way the final conflict between people of God and the people of unbelief will end. Now, let's go get some more detail about this because we all want to know more about this. This is fascinating stuff. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Let's start at verse 3. Second Thessalonians 2, 3. Let no one deceive you. That's, that's the constant problem in the last hour. Deception. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day, and that refers back to verse 1, the coming of our Lord Jesus, that day will not come unless the rebellion, the apostasy, the falling away comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of perdition, the son of destruction. Now drop to verse 6. And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time for the mystery of lawlessness is already, there it is again, at work. So just like John in 1 John 4, 3, Paul sees a final figure. He calls him the man of lawlessness, son of destruction. And he's coming. He's not yet revealed. That's how you know Jesus hasn't come in some secretive way and you've been deceived by these people who say he's already come. He hasn't come. The man of lawlessness is not here yet, but oh, the mystery of lawlessness is already here. Big time and big power in America and all over the world. This world lies under the power of the devil. And you'll read on in that chapter and you see that he comes, this man of lawlessness comes in the power of Satan which is why his power is already here, though he's not here because Satan is here. And the lawlessness that's going to come to its climax in him is already with Satan's great power infiltrating the world, has been for 2,000 years and more. So verse 7, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. 1 John 4, 3, this is the spirit of Antichrist, which you heard was coming. He is now already, already in the world. So I think Antichrist in John's thinking and man of lawlessness in Paul's are probably the same, same reality. So powerful, deceptive, anti-Christian, lawless, a figure is coming and his spirit is already here. Verse 8, 
then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. That's how it's going to end, folks. That will be glorious. Just when the lawless one and all those who've rejected the gospel think they are oppressing successfully the people of the living God, the skies split. And Jesus will have his own. And what's been hidden will be revealed. And you don't want to be on the wrong side when that happens. I promise you. Now, there's a lot of questions you could ask and a lot of things I don't know. But I know a lot now. That's a lot. And I know enough for us as a church to avoid four errors. I'm going to tell you what those four errors are right now. And then we'll go wrap it up back at our text about love. So here are four errors that we could make as America darkens, Christianity is criminalized, four errors we could make eschatologically concerning the second coming. Number one, error number one. The final events are so far off and I don't know how far off they are. I have no idea. So if you think I've been sounding like the man of lawlessness will come in 2014, wrong. I have no idea. Could be, could be six more of God's days. A week would be a good time for the end time. I hope that doesn't discourage you. I personally don't think it will be six more of God's days, but people have been wrong in every generation. You should be humble about these things. It is not yours to know the time and the seasons. Yours is to be my witness in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's our job, not to figure this out. This is a lot of knowledge to deal with right here. So first error Final events are so far off, we don't need to concern ourselves with warnings or preparations. You don't know that. Many antichrists have gone out into the world, and you know what their goal is? Their goal is to make you not know when he's coming. Their goal is to blind you to the fact that they're there. So, if you think, oh, we don't need to pay attention to these warnings about deception, you will go blind. You will have a clue what's coming. And that's talked about at the end of the second chapter of 2 Thessalonians. And God gives people over to their blindness. All right, that's error number one. Here's error number two. The final events are so close, we don't need to concern ourselves with the world or with tomorrow. The opposite error. They're so close. You don't need a plan. You don't need to found a seminary or build a school or have a retirement plan or 
He's there. And so we're just not, we're not, the world can go to hell in the handbasket as far as we're concerned. It's over for them. And we're not going to be here anyway. So the final events are so close. We don't need to concern ourselves with the world or tomorrow. Folks, they've always been close. From our perspective, they ought to be close. And our job never changes, ever. Go make disciples of all the peoples, baptizing them and teaching them everything I gave you, including how to live in every sphere of life. There's no teaching in the Bible that you should withhold as you do the Great Commission here and everywhere, which means the end time doesn't shut down missions. It doesn't shut down discipleship. It doesn't shut down schools. It doesn't shut down families. Everything is moving. Remember what Jesus said, told the parable. Wouldn't it be wonderful? The steward says, if the master would find me doing my duty, feeding the household. I've thought about that so many times, Jason, as I've wondered when it would happen. And I, I always ended that little conversation with the Lord, just let him find me doing my job. And you should feel that way too. Doing my godly job, living my life with all my might for his glory. That's error number two. Error number three, there will be so much lawlessness and unbelief at the end of the end that it is futile to pray or work toward revival in the church or great awakening in the city or the nation. Listen carefully, because I could have misled you so far. I didn't say anything wrong, I don't think, but it could mislead you here like, oh, it's really going to be bleak at the end. Yes, it will be bleak at the end. So we shouldn't pray for great awakenings. Okay, listen. There is nothing in biblical eschatology, nothing in biblical eschatology that says you or your family or this church or this city has to be a part of the ice age coming over the church and the world. Nothing. Which means, in picture in my head, is that, okay, here, the love of many will grow cold, right? So this glacier is coming over the world to freeze out Christians so that at the end of the age they're all deceived. What's our job? Torch it. Torch the glacier. You got this fire torching the glacier so that a big hole happens in the glacier and you see God and it could be wide enough so that Minneapolis is red hot for Jesus when he comes. Okay, can, you, can your eschatology handle that? Now, Bemidji and Duluth may have gone the way of all flesh. <laughs> That's just possible. I, or Minneapolis, and maybe Duluth would be white hot for Jesus, and the lake would be bubbling. 
Do you get this? There is nothing in the widespread lawlessness that will come that says, you've got to be lawless. Your family's got to be lost. Your church has to be lukewarm. Your city has to be a part of the apostasy. No way. We're going to give ourselves while we have breath, praying for revival, praying for great awakens, and leave it to God where the end is bleak. You're not, you're not working against God when you pray for revival or teaching your family to love Jesus or preserving a church in holiness and passion for Jesus. That's error number three thinking that it's going to be so bad at the end, you might as well not pray or work for Christ in his way. Let's see, let me say it another way. I've just described America bleakly. By the end of 2014, the country in the power of God could be on its head with revival. And nothing would change in my eschatology. You got that? America could be on its face in repentance like Nineveh. It could. Nothing in this eschatology would rule that out. I'm just saying right now it's really bleak. And if it gets bleaker, you got a way to live. You got a vision for how to understand these things. You got an orientation in the world that you're not thrown off balance. Error number four. The lawlessness and unbelief and immorality of the last days is not a sign of the church's failure. I'm so tired of hearing the condition of society is the report card of the church. No! This is God's sovereign plan. That at the end of the age, the Man of lawlessness and the Antichrist move across the world. And there is huge corruption everywhere. And the only churches that will survive are true, white-hot, Christ-loving, Bible-believing churches. And they haven't failed. So don't buy that. Don't buy that. We fail. Okay, don't... Don't go where I'm not going. The church is imperfect. We can do a thousand things better than we do. I'm just saying, if you buy that, you will come to the end of the age thinking it's over for the church because the man of lawlessness is winning. Read the book of Revelation. We lose short term. And then he comes and vindicates his own. And he doesn't say, well, if you had just been more faithful, there wouldn't have been a man of lawlessness. <laughs> no way. Last step, wrapping it up. Let's go back to 2 John. If you want to go there with me. Got a couple of things to point out here. This is, I'm back to my main point now. All that was just to say, why'd you call it at the end of the age? Now, the main point is Bethlehem, I'm almost done, and, 
And uh, Jason's going to pick it up and breathe on and nurture and build this people this way. And he knows as well as I do what we need to be at the end of the age is a people who love each other so that that community of love becomes a protection against deception. Or if you like more rhyme than that, solid affection for believers is a protection against deception. You could almost wrap that. But don't look to me to do that. <laughs> At least not unless the video is changed. <laughs> Recall the connection between verses 6 and 7. All right? Verse 6, that you should walk in it. That is the, the command to love each other. For, verse 7, for many deceivers have gone out into the world. We should love each other because loving each other is a great protection against deception. Now, why is it? I have two reasons to give. I saw four in the text. I'm looking. It's 40 minutes into the sermon here. My time should be over in five minutes. I'm going to try to do it. Probably won't quite make it, but I knew I couldn't do four. I'm going to do two and maybe blog the other two. Number one, Christian love is a great protection against deception because it's not mushy. It is solid affection for those who love and share the truth of Christ. It is solid affection for those who love and share with us the truth of Christ. Now, where do I get that? I'm not making that up. I get it from verses 1 and 2. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth. I love you in the truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth love you in the truth. Still more, because of the truth that abides in both of us. That's a lot of truth in two verses. Truth is the air we breathe. We're, we're loving in the truth. We're living in the truth. Truth is the sphere, the, the air we're breathing. It, it causes us to see in each other truth. And then he adds, and I love you because because of the truth that abides in us. I look at you and I love you because I see the, the truth is abiding in you. Let me give you a personal example of this. I just want to give some sweet testimony here. I'm almost done with my ministry here. And uh, so I'll risk saying this because it's just so evident to me. So I'm getting lots of cards and people shaking my hand with teary eyes and, and I get emails and it's really sweet. And uh, I know from words and cards and letters and emails that I'm loved by hundreds of people. Feels really good. I like to be loved. I know that I'm loved by hundreds of, of people whom I barely know. Now, what is that? How can you, how can a person take your hand with tears in their eyes and say, we've never talked but for the last three years, you've changed everything. What's that? That's love in the truth. 
That's love in the truth. If you, if you love Jesus with all your heart and you love the word of God with all your heart and you love the gospel with all the heart and I even come close to being faithful to him and to the word and to the gospel week after week, month after month, year after year in your life, you're going to love me and I'm going to love you absorbing that. That's what love is in the Christian church. It is an affection, it's a solid affection that rises up when it sees people loving what I love, loving the Christ I love, loving the gospel I love. It, it just binds people together in a remarkable way. It's not mushy. You're not attracted to, to people but just because their personality or their looks or whatever. It's this person is manifestly in the truth. This person is raised from the dead by the true one and loves the truth and I love the truth. How could I not love you? That's Christian love. Loving your enemy, that's something else. That's another sermon. Preach that someday. Loving your enemies, is, is a, that's another thing and it's real, it's true. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about this end time community where we're looking at each other, that we die for each other. And what we see in each other is you love what I love. Him the gospel. So that's the first reason I think that um, love is a good protection against deception because people who love like that in the truth just won't be easily deceived. They won't. The truth will be so much a part of the fabric of the love relationship that the love will supercharge the commitment to truth. And they won't be swept away in the lawlessness that, that surrounds them. One last reason and we'll be, we'll be done. Deception works because it makes us feel and think that shame looks glorious the way deception works. It makes us feel like shame looks glorious, ugly looks pretty, folly looks wise, suicidal looks life-giving, sadness looks like gladness. That's the way deception works. It can make your, your, your eyes just go crazy. Your brain goes crazy. You're insane in a profound way. Now look at verse 4. What I mean is, Deception makes the sad look glad. Deception makes the glad look sad, which means deception is always going to be making you feel like, I think there's more joy outside the church. I think there's a better, happier satisfaction in sin than in a righteous commitment to this people. I just, when that starts to creep over you, you know the lawless one, the Antichrist, Satan, is really after you. That the things of the world are feeling way more attractive than the people of God, the things of God, the, the word of God, the gospel of God, the, the Lord of glory. This is all really attractive out there. And you know something terrible is happening. At least if you're listening and God helps you, you'll know it. Look at verse 4. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. That's not a small joy. I rejoiced, that was one thing, greatly. The same phrase, only occurs one other place, Third John, same reason. He saw people, brothers were arriving in the truth 
John loved the truth of the gospel, loved the truth that Jesus is. He loved the whole air of Christian truth that he lived in, believed in, with Jesus and the gospel at the center. He loved it, and anybody that was walking in it, he was just happy as could be. And so am I. It's been a great place to minister. There are just so many gospel lovers at this church. I've said a hundred times when I'm on the road doing my thing, I love preaching to my people. They just lean in and absorb. And that just fills us with affection for one another because we love the same true one and the same truth. So, my second reason for why love is a protection against deception is that the community of truth lovers, Christ lovers, is a very happy community. I rejoiced greatly when I saw people walking in the truth. So if God would be pleased to stay in this church with power, which I believe he will, then we will be a people who love a common Savior and a common Bible and a common globe of truth. And as we look at one another, our hearts will leap up with gladness like John's. I rejoiced greatly to find my children walking in the truth. And the devil doesn't have a hook in happy Christians, just miserable Christians who are looking for an alternative pleasure. Let's pray. So, Father, I, I pray now for Bethlehem that in these darkening days in America, which don't have to stay darkening, but they are darkening, I pray for this church that in these darkening days, they won't let, the, we won't let the world, the spirit of Antichrist, the spirit and mystery of lawlessness rob us of our love for each other or our happiness in this fellowship. And that by that, that love and that happiness, we will be protected from deception. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.